Indeed, oh God, we come to thank you ceaselessly for love that is infinite. Father, at the base of our souls, there is the nagging doubt that you don't love us. And yet, what more can be done than you have done in Christ Jesus to demonstrate that you love sinful men, not because they're bright or not because they're, they're smarter or richer or more intelligent or, or cuter, but the explanation for your love is to be found deep within the heart, the magnanimous heart of the living God. And so, Father, ours is left to simply enjoy infinite love. And I pray, O oh God, that more and, more and more your people will sense your embrace, that we will know the great stimulations, the great encouragements, the great motivations that come from knowing that we're loved and because we are we are safe there is nothing left that we must add to make sure that we're safe we're safe we're safe because of what Jesus Christ did for us outside of us not depending on how much we repent not depending on how much we believe but wholly resting on the finished and accomplished work of Christ. And if we are, we are the beloved, the loved of God, and might that be the great strength of our souls. Our Father, we do want to commit to prayer this city that has been so racked with, with disaster that men seeking to serve our community could be targets of a murderer. Men seeking to protect us from harm, being harmed themselves. Oh God, it is a crazy world, one gone mad in sin. And its only hope is to be found in Christ Jesus. Our thriving economy has not stopped this madness. Our stable government has not stopped the, or even lessened the madness. We are better off financially than we've ever been, and yet our souls are stricken with greater poverty than ever before. So, Lord God, it is the time for the church of Jesus Christ to shine and, oh, God, might we shine for your glory. Enable us, Father, to live lives that reflect that we're related to the only one with any solutions, the only one with any words of life. We do pray for those families, oh, God, and pray that those inside those families who know you will be great instruments of grace and healing. Father, we do pray for the numerous folks from this congregation who are out and about this spring break. Guard them. Keep them safe. We don't take that safety for granted, Father. Get them home safely and, and allow them to enjoy their families and children 
as they are away on this vacation week. Father, for us, we commit ourselves to being fixed once again all over, fixed on your glory, concentrated, focused on all about you that is lovely. Might that stimulate us to love and good deeds? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the 14th chapter of Mark. And before I read our text this morning, there's two matters that I want to mention. Actually, they're really one. It's just part one, part two. Many of you have, in the past five weeks, been in my home where I have uh, used a, a term that I will be using a lot. Uh, it is this term, defining moments. Gracie Van is in a defining moment. I'm, I'm utterly convinced. By the way, concerning um, those visits to our home, there are two left. We've had uh, five. There are two remaining this coming Tuesday night and then the next Tuesday night. And if you have not been to one, we would, they're called vision parties. If you've not been to one, we would love to invite you to come. Um, I think what you're thinking that I'm doing, I'm not doing. And uh, I would love for you to come and let me lay out for you where we think Gracie Van ought to go in the next five years. But there are only a few slots left for this coming Tuesday. I think maybe four, five, six, something like that. Um, and then for the next week, a week from Tuesday, the 21st, there are, there are several, like 10 to 12. So if you have not been, we would invite you to come to our home on these next two Tuesday nights, 7.30 for dessert. Let us know that you're coming. If nobody's out there to sign, up, sign you up, come to me. I, I can sign you up. I, I know the cook. So um, I hope you'll be with us. Now, having said that also, let me, let me add this. Two weeks from tonight, mark your calendar. You must be here. You must. You must be here for a congregational meeting that will be held on March the 26th, two weeks from tonight. Let me say to you also, if you're visiting with us and you're snooping around trying to figure out whether Gracie Van is the place for you, we invite you to come. We'd love to have you here. You know those, those notorious business meetings that churches are so famous for? Come look at one of ours. I would love for you to see it. I would love for you to be a part of it. It's, it's, a, it's something over which we're proud. We would love for you to be a part. You can't vote, but come be a part of the congregational meeting two weeks from tonight. Now, let, let me tell you, no soccer game is more important than what's going to take place here that night. No, n no activity is more important to your family than what is going to take place in this building on the 26th at uh, 7 o'clock from 7 to 9. Number one, you will hear things that you have never heard before. I promise you. Number two, you will, you will do things that, is never, that have never been done before in the history of Grace Evangelical Church. Number three, you will be given the most detailed budget that has ever been handed to this congregation. And number four, if you're here, I will promise you a piece of my wife's famous cherry pie. You must, you must be here. Two weeks from tonight, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to do everything that we can. We'll come pick you up, if need be. But you must be a part of what's going on and must hear that 
concerning that will take place on the 26th of the month, two weeks from tonight. Now, I hope that you'll change your schedules. Whatever needs to be done, you must be here. Mark chapter 14 at verse 10, follow as I read this uh, story that is one reason why we believe the Bible, ladies and gentlemen. If you were trying to start a religion and you wanted to tell people how wonderful your religion were, was, you wouldn't include stories like this one. The story of Judas. Follow as I begin reading in verse 10 of chapter 14. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, it is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Now skip to verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given him a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. These last few days in the life of Jesus Christ are dark days, ladies and gentlemen. And I think you know that to be true. In a span of six days, Jesus denounces his murderers, as we saw last week. He is betrayed. He is denied by perhaps his closest associate. Um, he is put on trial. He is spit upon, mocked, scourged. He is sentenced to death, and of course he's crucified. Other than that, it was six days of a bed of roses. 
very little to enjoy about these last few days in the life of Jesus Christ. The, the events are dark. The players are dark. The, um, the passages are dark. The days are dark. And there's not too much of a way to, uh, to make them lighter. And, you know, uh, if you've ever been betrayed before, you probably understand why these passages are so dark. There's nothing that hurts like betrayal. Nothing that, that wounds us more deeply. Some of you, um, some time back, stood in front of friends and family and, and uh, some kind of religionist, and you stood next to one other person, and uh, you vowed that you would love until death do you part. And you kissed. And that was a kiss that blistered. Because now you sit here today having been betrayed by a spouse. Others of you uh, went into a business partnership you had high hopes for what you were going to accomplish in the new, new business that you were starting. You signed a contract and you struck a deal consummated with a firm, warm handshake with someone that you trusted, only to discover that he was untrustworthy and that he had stabbed you in the back. That, too, was one of those kisses that blistered. Folks, um, if you... Uh, detect if you sense that my uh, my tone or my demeanor is rather dramatic that's because it is this is high drama that's unfolding in front of us just think about this betrayed by a kiss of a friend folks that's the kind of stuff they make movies out of you may fault me, and, and you might be right in faulting me uh, over, he's just a little too dramatic for me. I, I do happen to be on the theatric end of the spectrum. But um, this is one time that you won't be able to fault me, ladies and gentlemen, because very honestly, my treatment understates the drama of what's unfolding. What you need is Charlton Heston or Lionel Barrymore. I remember... Um, one of my favorite stories to tell is a story that Spurgeon tells because his critics uh, used to criticize him over how many of uh, the jokes that he told in the pulpit. And his reply was, if they only knew the ones I didn't tell. You know, and I, I want to say to you, um, if you only knew how dram dramatic I wanted to be over this text, there are certain names that we all immediately associate with wickedness, with evil. Hitler, Stalin, Idi Amin, Jim Jones, only to name a few. But there has never been a name that's more despised, more despicable than the name of Judas Iscariot. Anybody here have a baby and name your son Judas? Do you ever read Dante's Inferno? It's a classic work, and Dante um, has a scene in it where right in the center, you can figure out what Dante's Inferno is, maybe. The Inferno happens to be hell. But um, in, the, in one of his scenes in Dante's Inferno, 
he, he depicts Satan being right in the center of it. And in his mouth is Judas Iscariot being torn to pieces by every grind. I, I'm not sure what Dante was trying to communicate, but I think he was trying to point out that of all the sins that have ever been committed, this, this was the worst. Betrayal. It's even a sinister word. Betrayal by a friend. Did, did you notice when I read the text that on in three, three times in verse 10, verse 20, and verse 43, it is, Judas is described as one of the 12. One of the 12. One of the 12 did this. Because they want you to know how, how unthinkable is this event. Ready for a Bible quiz? Let's have a Bible quiz. All of you who, uh, who were raised in Baptist circles and did sword drills, uh, here's your chance to shine. I want to I ask you a question. Please don't answer, because uh, it'll embarrass some and glorify the others. But just, just, just give it a thought. I want to read you a couple of verses uh, out of the Psalms, okay? And I want you to tell me, let me, let me read you uh, one, don't, don't turn, let me read you one verse here. Uh, it, here it is. Um, uh, I thought. There it is. Here it is. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Here's the other one. Um, these are three verses here. For it was not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion and my acquaintance, who took sweet counsel and walked in the house of God in the throng. Now here's the question. To whom do those two passages allude? Now if you said... Judas Iscariot, you would be wrong. <laughs> I tricked you, didn't I? Uh, it is not Judas Iscariot. It is a reference to a man whose name is Ahithophel. Do you know that story? Oh my, that's a pretty one too. Ahithophel was, was a counselor in David's um, um, entourage. And after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and, and the baby died and, and the, you know, he, he was forgiven indeed, but his kingdom came apart at the seams. Do you know the story? This is, this is recounted in 2 Samuel 15 through 17. You can take a look at it. But his son, Absalom, David's son, his son, Absalom, led a revolt against his father and ran him out of town. And one of David's counselors was a guy by the name of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel turned on David. And he stuck by Absalom, the son. But then as the story unfolds, there's another guy who was one of David's counselors. His name is Hushai. And Hushai uh, remained true to David, but snuck back into the, the presence of Absalom. And so they were having this discussion as to what Absalom should do now. And, and Ahithophel says, go get him! And, you know, bludgeon him now. Get rid of him forever. And Hushai, and Hushai says, um, 
in, in opposition to the Council of Ahithophel, he says, no, don't do it. You know, you're, you know your father? You know your father's a mighty man of valor. You know, he's sitting out there waiting for you. He's hoping that you would come. And of course, Hushai is telling him this because he wants to try and protect David because David's in no uh, condition to fight. And so Absalom takes Hushai's advice over Ahithophel's. And you know what Ahithophel did? He goes out. He sets his house in order, and he hangs himself. This is ugly business, ladies and gentlemen. He was a type of Judas, but it's all ugly. This betrayal business is not something that, um, that I uh, like about life, do you? The story uh, of Judas, I think, is rather familiar. I'm not going to waste a whole lot of time, not waste, but I'm not going to take a whole lot of time um, rehearsing the story, just some of the, skimming some of the high points. The, um, the whole betrayal incident is introduced by Jesus when he drops this bombshell in uh, verse 18 of chapter 14. He says, assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And it sets off this round, uh, apparently, of everybody at the table. Everybody's saying, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? I? All Jesus needed to do at that moment is look around the room and say, nope, it's him. And Peter would have grabbed him and wrestled him to the ground and choked him to death right there. But Jesus doesn't, as you know. But gang, um, if, you, if, you are, if you think that this betrayal begins in Mark 14, that, that's rather short-sighted because it began long ago. In, the, in fact, the first reference that I could find was in John 6. Jesus has um, just announced to his audience, he called himself the bread of life in John 6, and um, people began to withdraw from him. Remember that? And... Um, it's at that point that it is mentioned that there's one in the group that's going to betray him. Because apparently, when Judas hears that business of being bread of life, he begins to think, what? I didn't sign up for you to be the bread of life. I signed up for you to be a military con conqueror. And then the next day, he feeds the multitude, and they try to make him king. Remember that? And Jesus refuses mentioned again and then only hours before Jesus is crucified this event of Mark 14 3 occurs where this woman who's named by one of the other stories is a Mary Mary takes this box of I, I always love this term spike nerd does anybody know what spike nerd is I don't either but it has to do something with fragrance but she breaks this thing all over Jesus and and Judas is saying there, he, he steps back and immediately puts a price on it. Oh, well, that could have been sold for 300 days' wages. I mean, somebody could be living here. This is a terrible way. We've got to give him the money to the poor. Judas was good at setting or putting prices on things. Only a few hours later, he would put a price on Jesus' head. That scene where this fragrance was wasted. That was the last straw for Judas. 
I wish I could have been there when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. I would have loved to have seen Judas's face because he had to remain cool. This is a dangerous moment. And then Jesus takes a piece of bread and extends it to Judas. Oh, my friends, his lips must have been burned. As he takes from the hands of Jesus this, this crust of bread, his lips must have burned the same way his hands would burn with 30 pieces of silver in it. Only a few minutes earlier, the, the hands of the Son of God had washed his feet. Now these same divine hands touch the lips of Judas with a crust of bread. And in a few hours, those lips will kiss the lips of Jesus in an act of betrayal. When, Jesus, when Judas leaves the room, the other guys conclude that he's gone out to, uh, to purchase the, the, the necessary supplies that they needed. But Jesus, when Judas left, he didn't go out to buy. He went out to sell. It's very symbolic, ladies and gentlemen, that Jesus is paid for with monies that came out of the temple. Monies that were supposed to be used to buy sacrificial animals. And Jesus was purchased. This man, this one who had become the servant of his people, he's purchased for the price of a slave. 30 pieces of silver. This kiss deserves just a, just a moment of explanation. That's mentioned in verse 45. The reason I draw your attention to it is because it's not the normal word for kiss. The normal word is the word phileo. This is the term kata phileo. And that kata, which is a prefix, it intensifies the word. What is being portrayed here is not that Jesus was, that Judas just, it was a passionate, it was an affectionate, it was a, it was a fervent kind of emotional display as Judas takes this symbol of intimacy and prostrates it. He ruins, he defiles that which was supposed to symbolize intimacy. You know, in my, uh, in my wedding ceremonies, um, when I'm standing up here in the rehearsal, you know, and, and uh, everything's decorated and everybody's giggling and and uh, I tell the couple, okay, you exchange rings here, and this is what you say, and this is what you do, and, you know, you give the flowers to her. And, and uh, at this moment, I'm going to say, Mr. So-and-so, you can kiss Mrs. So-and-so. And I always lean over to him, and I say, now listen, guys, this is no time for passion. Let's not embarrass us all by a display of, uh, you know, public uh, affection here. Let's not, just a little peck will do, and let's, uh, you know, let's get you out of here. But my point is, this was no peck. This was katafaleo. There was some kind of intensity in what Judas does and, and ruins what is otherwise known as something as a term of endearment. That's the story, ladies and gentlemen. That's really all I want to do in terms of spending time on the story. I think you know many of the other details. But what I want to do is close with three lessons for us, which I hope will be uh, helpful to you as, you as you consider this story. Here's lesson number one. 
Everybody in the Christian church seems to know what discipleship is. So we talk about discipleship programs, discipleship studies. Everybody knows what discipleship is. Simply defined, discipleship is the process of becoming more like Jesus Christ. When you call yourself a disciple, you are saying that I'm trying to emulate him. I'm trying to become like him. That's what a disciple is. Well, gang, if that's true, if you want to be like Jesus, then one of the things that you're going to have to expect is betrayal. A marriage, a friendship, a partnership, you get sold out. But I can say this to you, my friend. People who follow Jesus Christ get betrayed, just like he did. It's a part. It's an unseemly part. It's a dark part. But it's, um, it's a part of the whole discipleship process. Which really leads me to my second lesson. I hope you noticed that it was mentioned twice in the text. This death that we're witnessing is not a martyrdom, ladies and gentlemen. It is not a disgrace. It is not a defeat. It's not even a consequence of this betrayal. Notice in verse 21, the Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. Then in verse 48, 49, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Gang, what you, are be what you are beholding here is the unfolding of the plan of God in the life of Jesus Christ. And you know what it includes? It includes an event of incredible evil. And there's the tendency to think, oh my goodness, evil has run contrary into the face of the plans and the, and the economy of God. And somehow, what, is, what are we going to do about all the evil? Ladies and gentlemen, what I'm trying to suggest to you is that somehow, even something as evil as a betrayal fits. It fits into the plan of God. I don't know why you were betrayed. I don't know why your marriage didn't work. I don't know why your business blew up. I don't know why that friend is no longer a friend, but I know this. That did not catch God by surprise. It did not knock him off his throne, and it shouldn't knock you off your balance either. Even evil, ladies and gentlemen, even evil is working out the divine redemptive plans of this God. Nothing could be more evil than this event, and even that is designed to carry out the scriptures. One other thing, and I'm finished. The most intriguing part of this whole story for me was found in verse 19. I don't know whether you caught it when I read it. Go back and take a look at it, because to me, it is, it is so interesting. Verse 19, and they began to be sorrowful. No, no, no. Yes, that's it. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? You notice what it says. It says one by one. They went around the room and said, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? They're all breaking that away. Did I do it? Did I do it? Now, gang, is that the reaction that you would have had? I mean, I'd have been sitting around the table saying, I didn't do it. It's him. I didn't do it. No, sir, Bob. It's not me. 
That's what they should have been saying. There was only one man around that table who was a betrayer. The rest of them should have been able to say, I'm doing that. But here's the point, I think. When you get yourself into the presence of deity, you can never be quite sure that you wouldn't be guilty too. You know, guys, I mean, did, did you, do you understand? Um, everybody, there's only one traitor around that table. But when you're in the presence of God, anybody with any smidgen of spiritual life understands that when I see God for who he is, it makes me realize that I have the potential to do anything. When I'm in the presence of Jesus, I am more alert, more aware, more conscious of my sin than at any other time. And you know, gang, one of the things that, that alarms me about the Christian church is that what we tend to do is measure our spiritual attainment comparing ourselves with each other. I want you to know something, ladies and gentlemen. Compared to some of you, I'm doing great. And you compared to me, some of you are doing great. But you know what? You're not the standard. And when I get into the presence of Jesus, I begin to think, is it I? Of course I could do that. Because when I compare my soul next to the perfections of our Savior, I begin to think, oh yeah, he must be talking about me. Because I know that potential works in my breath too. Gang, one other benefit, one other observation, or maybe really two, but there is nothing that is more healthy for the people of God than to remain and abide in the presence of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you one benefit. There's lots of them, but there's one. You know what happens when we remain and abide in the presence of Jesus? We become far less judgmental of each other. You, you don't notice anybody around that table saying, Oh, yeah, it's him. <laughs> I could have told you that, Jesus. No. You had not got time to figure out what else other people are doing. Because you are so gripped by your own sin. Because that's what living and dwelling in the presence of Jesus Christ will do for us. It will expose us for who we really are. And that, ladies and gentlemen, makes us less judgmental of each other. And I am utterly convinced that one of the reasons that we judge others is because we begin to compare ourselves with ourselves and we think, well, oh God, spiritually I'm doing much better than her. I'd never do that. Nobody ever says, why? I'd never do that. They only say, is it I? Is it I? Did I? Are you talking about me? You know, again, one other observation. One of the things that I think makes worship difficult for us is this very thing. Because entering into the presence of Jesus Christ alerts us more keenly to our sin, and that is very uncomfortable. 
I think one of the reasons that we look for reasons not to worship is because the whole idea of having the truth of God exposed in my presence, it, it alerts me to things that I wish I didn't have to look at very frequently. I don't want to look at that. And very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, they're not going to make you look at it. But when you enter the presence of Christ, you've got to look at it. Because when you stand next to him, the only thing that you can think is, is it I? I'll say one other thing. Have you ever, have you ever started a, a regimen of studying your Bible? Oh, this year, new millennium, I'm going to study my Bible from front to back. And you get up someplace around Leviticus and you quit. And you say, um, well, the reason I quit is because Leviticus is just so hard to understand. That might be the reason. I'm sure it's part of it. But let me tell you another part of the reason. It's because wandering through this book, I come face to face with perfection. Which forces me to come face to face with my imperfections. And I don't want to do that. So I'm going to stay as far away from him as I can. And yet, my friends, when I'm in his presence and most aware of my sin, that's where I'm the safest. It's also the place where I get my feet washed. And he tells me, you're clean. Don't run from his presence, ladies and gentlemen. Run to it. One final word. Judas, the one who kisses, meets up one final time with the one that he kissed. But the betrayed is now the judge. The judge before whom Judas must now stand and hear from those same lips that he so recently kissed. Depart from me. I never knew you. Amen. Father, we do thank you for your word. We love it. We love discovering over and over again what's true about us and what's true about you. And the more we find what is true about you, we discover what is true about us, and that is our utter delight. And I pray, O oh God, that you will allow even dark scenes like this with Judas stimulate us to love and good deeds. Might we race to the very presence of the one who alone can pronounce us clean, who alone washes our feet, serves us by dying in our place, and then resurrects, ascends, and is now seated to intercede for us. Oh, Jesus, why would we, never, why would we ever not want to be in your presence? And now, Father, prepare us for this event in the, in the worship of your people. Might it be a celebration of our forgiveness. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
guys, um, I, I've already preached, and I don't want to take any more of your time.